Hey friends, welcome to another episode of the Hubricane Podcast. And for those of you that are new here, my name is Simon Osimo and you can join me for weekly conversations with some really interesting people as I explore their personal stories, transformations and experiences that help educate, inform and inspire. Now on today's episode, I'm joined by Gary Robinson, who has a unique story of transformation. At 11, his mother murdered someone, and with his father long gone, there are few people in Gary's family willing to take him in. Now, by the time Gary was 13, he was dependable on alcohol and considered himself to be a drug addict. His life hit an all-time low when he was 15 when he tried to commit suicide. And at 19, when he was living on the street selling drugs, he saw an opportunity one day to rob and kidnap two men, and he found himself given a 15-year prison sentence. Now he was in prison one day when he saw a Bible and he asked himself, if my great-grandmother had so much faith in me, what could I become if I followed God's word? Now this revelation went on to not only change Gary's thinking, but it also changed his life. I know you'll find this an incredible, incredible journey of transformation. But before we dive into this week's content, I want to remind you that you can listen to this podcast wherever you consume your content, and the video can be found on my YouTube channel, at Simon Osimo. Now, if you get something from this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would like and share with your circle of influence and consider writing a review on iTunes. Okay, so let's dive into this week's conversation with Gary Robinson. Welcome to the Who I Became podcast. Actually, at 19 years old, you're incarcerated for um, two counts of kidnap, two counts of robbery. Um, uh, you're sentenced to 15 years and you serve 12 years and, and nine months. Now, I mean, when you, when you hear that, Gary, does that stir up any emotions in you for your conviction? The, yeah, two, two specifically. Uh, one is the fact that I altered and changed uh, two lives in the process um, that I'll, I'll never realize how detrimental my actions were, but I know that they have been. And, you know, that's regret. And then the second is that sometimes you have to hit rock bottom to find out who you really are. And, you know, so it's a dichotomy of feeling. It's like, you know, in one instance, I feel very bad because of what I've done. And then in the next instance, um, I was one of those guys who was grateful that I was in prison as opposed to dying. And I came to the conclusion that it was my actions that got me there. Yeah, and it's so um, you know, I mean, when I heard your story um, this week, you know, I mean, you shared some some time together. Um, every time I hear one of these, it's almost like a building block where it makes me feel bad because there's been adversity in my own life where naturally as humans we have a bit of sort of self-sorrow and then I, I hear stories yeah. like yours and people are going to hear your transformation and I use the word wow quite a lot but there's a lot of layers to unpack that have sort of occurred in your life before you even got incarcerated you know and one of those things was that there was two defining moments that we'll sort of touch on during this podcast today and one was when your mother uh, committed murder when you were 11 um, and then the second when there was a, a time when you're age 15 years old where you committed suicide. So there's a lot that's gone on in your life, a lot of sort of um, uh, brokenness. But I'd love to start, Gary, just focusing on perhaps around your conviction for now. So tell us around the events that led to you being um, sentenced to 15 years for two counts of kidnap and two counts of, of armed robbery. Well, it, it was uh, one of those instances where um, I was out one night, needed some money. I was getting, I was actually getting ready to get out of town. and. Um, the opportunity presented itself. I met, ran into two, ran into some guys and they, you know, basically it was like, Hey, we've got a, we've got a Vic on the line. And there were two guys outside of a club. Uh, we approached the car, got into the car, made them follow uh, the lead car, took them to an abandoned place, got them out of the car, robbed them, beat them, tied them up and basically just left them there. Um, and as it would happen, as luck would happen, you know, it just we ended up riding back by that same street about an hour after we left those guys. And when we rolled back by that same street, they had somehow gotten loose, went to a neighbor's house. The cops had arrived and were actually uh, just investigating the scene when the car rides back by and 
we see the strobe lights hit the car. And I guess that's when they pointed it out. We go on a high speed chase and eventually we get caught. But, you know, it was one of those situations where I found myself where I found myself in a position where, okay, it's time for me to do something different. Um, I need to leave South Carolina because nothing is happening. And I took an easy way out. Yeah. And I should say that at this time you are, you're 19 years old and really, and I think hopefully the viewers will, will come to the same type of conclusion that I do when they, we go back in your journey, but that was almost like an intervention really, but you know, it sounds really bad to say that you had this conviction and the, the, the actions that you took against two other people, but it was really an intervention where that was a lot that allowed you to really take control of the steering wheel of your life. Um, or perhaps allow God or someone else to, and it led you in a in a different direction. I mean, those two people, was there a trial and conviction, or did you plead guilty? What happened, Gary, during, the, during that phase? So, uh, of course, you know, uh, I went I went to court, pleaded guilty. I had a public defender, um, which I, after I sat in, I sat in the sat in the county jail for about eight months to a year. Saw that public defender twice. The first time he approached, he offered me 50 years. Uh, it was probably four months later. He came back and he offered me 30 years. And, you know, I re I'll never forget when he said, uh, when, he, when he came to me and he said 50 years, it was just like, oh, you know, are you crazy? Of course not. I'm not taking 50 years. Didn't ask me anything about the case. Second time he came back, he offered me 30 years. And uh, I remember him saying, he looked at me, he was an older white guy. And he looked at me. He was, you know, humped over, probably about six three. Now he's about six one, um, and he said, "Look at the bright side. You'll be my age when you get out." And I remember looking at him, and just taking everything in. And I was just saying to myself, "There is no bright side if I take thirty years, and I'm your age when I get out." Of course not. And of course, I plead guilty because when you're in the county jail, that's typically what happens to keep you in there. You don't have a lawyer. Um. And you just want to get out so bad that you're willing to plead to anything. So I pleaded guilty. Uh, one of the victims uh, actually got on the stand and explained what happened. And the whole time he was explaining what was happening, I was thinking it to myself, I'm never going to get out of jail. And God forbid this, this gentleman, he never detailed exactly what took place, you know, exactly. Because I was like the the worst one and he never detailed any of it. And judge looked to my lawyer and asked him if he had anything to say. My lawyer turned to me as if I had an answer. I didn't have an answer. It's my first time really in, you know, in the courts. I'd commit a lot of crimes. I just never got caught. My public defender looks at me. So I whisper the first thing comes to my mind. I asked him, say, hey, ask the judge to give me 10 years. He asked the judge to sentence me to 15 and the judge agreed. I was sentenced to 15 years in prison. Wow. I mean, and your two victims right now, we should cover this. I know we're going to hear your story of transformation, but, you know, the, the two people that you did tie up uh, and sort of rob, I mean, I know it was like $200 is all you really had, but, you know, how, how do you how do you feel towards those two people or, or what do you really say um, now? Um, There was a lot of soul searching. When you do wrong and hindsight is twenty twenty. you know, sometimes when you're in bad and I was in prison, so of course, I'm at the bottom. So I have time to reflect. And I start to realize that I get I got myself into that situation. Those guys didn't deserve that. No one deserves that. Because the flip side of that, when you're in that life, you don't think about what happens, you know, um, how that affects somebody at night, waking up in cold sweats, how that affects them when they're out in society, when they're sitting in their car or they're having flashbacks. Um, just that type of traumatic experience can do a lot of damage. So, of course, you know, I went through the phase in prison where uh, I acknowledged my actions. And I remember um, I was a part of a Kairos group um, and they had us write down the names of people that we hurt um, in our life. And you wrote that you wrote the person's name down. You said a prayer, you put it in a tin and you burnt it. And it was like, uh, you know, absolution to a degree. Um, but nothing can really absolve me for what I've done because I altered somebody's life and probably the lives of their family members and people that they're going to come, come in contact with as well. So, I mean, 
you do the best that you can and strive to ask for forgiveness. And if you have the opportunity to retro, you know, to 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 actually change somebody's life and help another young person not go through that or help someone overcome some traumatic experience. That's kind of how I see it. That's really the only thing I can do because I can't take it back. Yeah. And what about, and so I've got to address this and I should say that um, the podcast we're recording today, there is a video podcast and we and you can see each other. And there's also an audio podcast where naturally people people won't. So they might not necessarily know that you know, I'm I'm black and I'm from England. You know, my father is Nigerian and my mum is white English. Uh-huh. Um, and I served in the police for, for many years. And also, you know, you're black and you're considered an African-American, whatever that is. I mean, I, I won't get into my mindset about it, but I'm like, you're either American or you're African. Which one are you? But as, as, a podcaster, <laughs> as a podcaster later day, but I want to lay the foundation for people because I've got a question um, to ask you. It's surrounding... You know, there's a lot of race relations in the U.S. right now. I mean, the whole world is going crazy about all these sort of race relations and, and racism. Now, my question is about that, that public defender. And you might not, there might not be a short answer here, so I don't, I don't <laughs> derail your story. But, you know, when you're, when you're first in there, you're 19 years old. And I get it. I mean, you know, I work to organize crime in the UK. I know there's some bad people in society. There's a lot of brokenness and we're going to hear about your transformation a bit later. But, you know, when you've got two counts of kidnap, two counts of armed robbery and someone saying, you know, take 50 years and they haven't even asked you a question or about the case surrounding, you know, are you going to say you're not guilty of this? Are there any um, circumstances that we can, can put up or just tell me your version of what happened or what brought you here? Do, do you think the first time you walked in the door, was there any correlation between that 50 years and not trying because you were perceived that African-American male? Um, I guess my question question really is, Gary, in a short way, I'll get to it, is do you think, you, do you think it would have been a different answer had you been a white 19-year-old in there that had committed a, an armed robbery? Well, I, I believe it's relative. Um, and what I mean by that is I have seen in my life not only just being in the county jail, but in afterwards being in prison and knowing that I have one friend who had a drug conviction because he had a certain amount of marijuana. And there was a young white guy who had a certain amount of marijuana, typically the same, and they got totally different sentences. And it's not because this guy had a lawyer because he had a public defender as well. You know, so I believe to some degree that it that plays a part. I also believe also that there's a lot that's placed upon a public defender when you've got 200 cases and you have to deal with these 200 cases and you aren't getting paid what someone in the private sector is, uh, you know, who can bill hourly like, you know, normal. I think sometimes these people come into the into the system and they have a good heart and they have great ideas and they want to change lives no matter what color they are, but then they find that the system isn't designed for that. And over time they become broken and they become bitter and they just kind of give up. And that I, I, I felt that way about that specific individual. He didn't strike me as a person who was just a fighter. He felt it, it looked to me like even at my young, even at that time I was young and didn't really understand the ramifications of systemic racism or any of that but he just looked like he was beat down you know shoulder sagging you know uh no 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 light in his eye no fire in his eye and he just kind of like came in like hey man look um this is this is take 50 (laughs) years this is best i can do for you (laughs) and i'm laughing because you know i spent 14 years in the police and there's two things that it turns you it's very cynical and it does beat you down and there's a lot of you know like i said as a a black english guy i don't want to defend the way the police are in america or across the world you know there's 90 percent of the police are good and there's a small element of racism and prejudice and, and bad people but you know they are seeing the the most evil in society uh, under the most pressured situations. So it's it's good to hear you understand the, the pressures and how the system is sort of laid out and not beat you down um, too much. But yeah, um, I, now now the flip side of that too, you know, I understand. You know, the the when you think about the police, you know, it's something that I always that I, that I have I have always thought. Um, and if I have a little time, I just want to share it real quick with you. Um, moments, yeah. Um. When you think about 
we, 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 we hear systemic racism all the time. I had no idea what it was really at that age. I just knew and understood that if you're black, these are the, the circumstances that you're probably going to find yourself in. Now, after doing a little study and a little research, slave catchers translate to prisoners. I mean, uh, police officers. You also have that aspect where you have a group of people that were brought into a country for one specific purpose, not to be treated as human, to be treated as chattel slaves. That's it. Your life means less than everyone else's. If you weigh it on a scale, black life has meant low, has meant less than white life. If you have to, if you have to turn that in as currency on the street, a white life as opposed to a black life, a white life is going to get more currency than a black life. And that's because that's the system America has always been based on that. What happened was with the advent of them saying that, hey, we're going to abolish slavery, you never transformed the mentality of people that never accepted us as human beings. They were just forced to open their schools. They were just forced to allow us in their restaurants. They were just forced to take the hoods off. They were just forced to hide their racism and their bias and their prejudice. So when we see what we see now, that's a mirror reflection of something that has been taking place for 401 years. Black life has always been considered less than white life. If you had black blood, you were three-fifths of a human being. The mentality of these people have changed. In order to transform that type of mentality, you need counseling. When your grandfather was a slave owner and your great grandfather was a slave owner and your father was a slave owner and you grew up hearing certain conversations and you grew up seeing people treated a certain way, unconsciously, you're going to adopt certain practices, certain principles, certain philosophies, certain ideologies. And if you don't receive any type of counseling to correct that, then you have a problem. And then when you go to school and you aren't taught any African history, which is world history, everybody great that has done something significant, magnificent, all the leaders in the world look just like white people. That's yeah. a conditioning. That's not education. That's conditioning you to accept white power, white rule, white dominance. And when you compare that to you really, when you look at black history and you look at it in school settings, slavery, that's it. Black life means a little less. So with that being said, the condition that we find ourselves in now is, of course, you see this overall broad range of America, not just in the South, not just in Texas. You see it all over. And the reason why you see it all over is because the thought process that permeated America 400 years ago still permeates America. Nothing has been done. We just forced them to open doors that they never wanted to open. Well, Gary's a couple of fingers in, and one for me being outside of you know the African American culture and, and not being born in the US. That's great insight for me to to listen to, and also um, I, I want to make sure people know that you know um, you are forty two now, I believe, um, Gary. But you never finished yeah. school with a, a GED diploma, as they say here in the US. I mean, you're very articulate in how you talk about um, these things. So I really want to now let's dive back to your your upbringing and and let yeah. people understand where you came from as to where you are now because you know you just you argued you argued your point there like a college professor so it's very articulate but you didn't start in that world so maybe tell us about you know when you're 11 and your mum committed murder and maybe a couple just a couple of years before just to lay some of the foundations to what your your upbringing was like oh that yeah yeah that was interesting um <laughs> yeah that was interesting like uh my mom had us when we were in my mom you know went to job corps and had me and my sister in Kentucky. Uh, my father was abusive. She left him. Basically said, "Hey, look, I'm uh, I'm going to the store. I'll be back." And she didn't and come back. Your mom was she 18 came. at this point. We should say that. Mom as well. was like, she "Yeah, mom was like, yeah." She's like 18. Yeah. Um, she always told me my father had an opportunity to play ball, but he just liked to drink. You know, play basketball, but he liked to drink. Made bad decisions, and she was tired of it. Told him that she was going to the store. She goes to uh, to his job, gets his check, comes back home. And her idea, her ideology was, I have two kids to raise. It's going to be hard. I don't have the help. So my sister was given up for adoption. She kept me. And 
it was, you know, life from that point, when I reflect back on life from that, it was, there were that, that element, what do you, what would you call that element, that street element has always been a part of my life to a large degree. Um, even when my mom dated some of the biggest drug dealers around and right before my situation turned detrimental, it was mom was no longer dating this guy. Things had kind of took a, a bad turn. I don't really know exactly what happened, of course, because I was young. But at one point, we didn't have a car. She worked in the cotton field to make sure that the bills were paid. And this was in the 90s. This was like unheard of. Um, we didn't have a stove at one point. We She was cooking our meals on a hot plate because one of one of the boyfriends came and cut the gas line with a with a machete. And I'll never forget when he when he cut the gas lines with the machete, the cops, the the fire department and everybody came out. And you could smell the gas all over the street. And the reality was that you cut the gas lines with a machete and you could have blown everybody up. Oh, yeah. But this was just a psychotic. Yeah, this was the psychotic nature. And the this, you know, it it, it wasn't a, a good foundation. Right. So when I was 11. uh my mom ended up getting into something that was a bully in the neighborhood, tried to take advantage of her um, and really got upset because I guess he felt that she stepped out of line. He cracked the joke and she responded and she cracked the joke. Well, he didn't like what she had to say. So this guy grabs her, starts choking her. He's bigger. He's stronger. She can't do anything. And no one helps her. She goes home. She gets a gun uh, and they sentence her to 28 and a half years in prison for manslaughter. I saw my mom once in the county jail. I want to say I was 11, maybe 12. The next time I saw her, I was 25, and she was coming to see me in prison. Wow. And now there's a couple of things in that story. So, I mean, you know, your mom obviously went home to go and get the gun. I mean, even at a young age, yeah. were you exposed? I mean, you know, you told us a story about an ex-boyfriend cutting the, the gas line with a machete, but were you exposed to weapons and, and violence in your childhood? I mean, that's, Did you know I, your mom had a gun? I didn't know my mom had a gun. But I grew up watching my mom fight numerous boyfriends, you know, like my entire young life. I, I grew up seeing, you know, that like even that night when the guy cut the, the gas line, I remember me and my one of my friends, we were in the house and we were playing a video game. And uh, I heard the we, we heard the noise. We heard the car pull up, but it was a car. But it was a house beside us. So we weren't really sure who it was, but we were at the house playing the video game. And then we heard the banging on the door. And then we heard a different sound and the sound sounded like it was coming from the under the house. We didn't know at the time what he was doing was cutting the line because he had bought her a propane tank and he had bought her a stove and he felt that she was cheating and, you know, he was abusive and aggressive. So of course, you know, he cuts the gas line, he's banging on the door and my buddy, he walks around the house and my buddy, we, you know, the, 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 curtain is kind of open that he sees who it is and he calls the guy's name and we both look at each other in alarm because this is like one of those guys like if he's on one side of the street you go on the other side of the street you know and he goes around back to the back of the house he kicks the door in well there's a room right next to my bedroom there wasn't a light on and we kept all of the clothes in there um that hadn't been unpacked so it's garbage bags full of clothes and he hides in one corner i hide in the other corner Guy kicks the door in, comes in the house, screaming my mom's name, profanity. And he's kicking the doors in as he's going through the rooms. And I'll never forget when he came into that specific room, um, I was hiding in the corner. And my, my, my bedroom door had a blanket over it. The light was on. And he snatched the blanket down. So when he walked into the door, the light from my bedroom was spilling over him. So I could kind of see partially, I could see his face, but I'm buried up under these garbage bags and I'm looking up and he's standing in the room and he's got a machete in one hand and he's got a pistol in the other hand and he's looking around and he looks in my direction. And the only thing that I can think of is that I'm going to die like immediately. That's all I thought. And what's always crazy when I think about it was that it wasn't a lot of heart beating palpitations. It was just, I'm about to die. Just normal. That's not something a young kid should automatically feel in that well, type of environment. I was going to ask you about that, um, Gary, because, you know, there's always 
different ideas as to what is normal within a home. You know, there is no yeah. change to the normal. But I guess, you know, if your mum was a single parent, an absent father, there's drink, there's drugs, there's these sort of violent men that keep coming into her life. You know, you're living in different locations. You've got your clothes in, in garbage bags waiting to move to the next sort of social housing. I mean, was this as a youngster, I mean, even at 11, there's a lot of remembrance, I'm sure, about 11. Was this just, this is life? Or did you know it was wrong? Did you feel there was a better life for you? Uh, what were you thinking about point in your life? I knew that there was greater within me because I'd always been told, you know, about my potential, but I just didn't have, like, I didn't have, like, anybody that could help me cultivate it um, and help me grow into my greatness. Um, but that was that was the norm at the time because it was what I was used to. Now, of course, like I said, my mom had told us we were the black sheep of the family. So, of course, when we ran around other family members, I was able to see other lifestyles, you know, even in the neighborhood. Like I had friends who were, you know, their parents, mother and father, stable environment, um, G&T students. I had a buddy who just but he grew up in a bad environment like mine. And he was a GNT student, but his actions were just sort of like mine. It was actually me and him that were in that house together. And yeah, I'm not um, familiar with the term GNT, GNT like student, a like a it? gifted, gifted and talented. Oh, gifted and talented. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in the in the neighborhood, in the most in the most poverty stricken neighborhood, you have these young people who are gifted and talented, but don't have the right direction and the right guidance. Um, and in my neighborhood, I was able to see someone who had the right you know background the right foundation and see how they were productive in school and doing all you know all the things that were needed to be done but i also had to view my own life and i saw that it differed and i saw my buddy's life and he was mentally his mental capabilities as far as his knowledge and his insight was higher than mine as far as in a school setting but he was in an environment like mine and i realized early on that um you have to have the right foundation things have to be in play or you have to have mentors somebody that can pull you out and give you guidance because if you don't and you're left to the uh, to the devices of the neighborhood and if they're destructive you're going to be destructive that's why it does take a village to raise a child you know yeah. they're going to grow up either good or they're going to grow up bad but the village is going to raise them yeah, the culture and the environment do play into an awful lot as to how we live our lives. So, I mean, you mentioned that your mum was then convicted. I think you said the next time you saw her, you were 24, 25, being convicted mm -hmm. yourself. But maybe talk us, to us about what happened post your mum's conviction for manslaughter then. So, so where, where did you go leading up to your um, contemplation of suicide at 15? Uh, my great-grandmother. My great-grandmother raised me because that, that particular night when that when that happened, I was at my great grandmother's house because uh, I came home that night. I wanted something to eat and there was no food. So I go to my great grandmother's house. She lived around the corner. And while I was sitting there eating, that's when it happened. The gunshot. And I knew it was my mom. A few minutes later, someone knocks on the door, tells my grandmother the news. My mom had just shot someone. And from that point, she decided to raise me. Now, other family members told her to let the state take me that you know, just let him go to foster care because you can't do anything with him. He's too far gone. But my great grandmother decided to raise me because she raised my mom. And you're my 11 at this point. I mean, I want to just unpack yeah. that a little bit. So you're 11 years old and, and the brokenness around your family is telling your great grandmother that he's too far gone. You know, this child can't be saved. Let the, let the state deal with him. It just really understands the brokenness, which is, which is around there. Most probably for generational cycles that have gone for many years yeah because like you know it, it when you say that it's uh it's actually true because my grandmother didn't raise my mom she gave my mom away when she was like three to a lady around the street and my someone knew my great-grandmother and decided they, they said hey i know her and told my great-grandmother my great-grandmother went and got my mom and she raised her until she was a certain age so I guess she, you know, she, her knowing the background and the situation that I'm growing up in, she took it upon herself to raise me. Um, I'm forever grateful for that. My great grandmother's still alive. She's right now, I think she's 104. Her birthday is September 18th. 
Okay, so just you talking about these people, you can tell there's a closeness in all these generations because I've never heard anyone yeah. say my great 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 grandfather was, was raised with stuff. So it's it's fascinating yeah. to listen to. Um, Garrett really is, yeah. And so so what led up to you um, wanting to commit suicide at 15? Then so you you went to your great great grandmother. You're you're living mm -hmm. with her. So we sort of fast forward from 11 to 15. What led you to be wanting to take your own life at 15 years old? It, it was a combination of things. Um, when I lived with my great grandmother, you know, other family members lived there and there was a steady chorus of negative words spoken over my life. Um, I would hear things like, you're going to be just like your mama. Um, he's not used to anything. He's not used to clean clothes, not used to, you know, clean bed. Um, you should have let the state take him. Why can't you be more like your cousins? So, you know, when you consistently hear this, it becomes a chorus. And all of us have a chorus in our head. You're either bright, intelligent, beautiful, just like your mama, just like your daddy, never go out to anything. That's a chorus. All of us have that chorus in our head. And me being at the age that I was, I didn't know how to filter. So, of course, I just accepted what I heard. You know, Zig Ziglar says something. He says that you, you never rise higher than your own self-perception. Your, your self-perception is based on people's perception of you and when you're a young age that's where all your significance comes from so of course now my great-grandmother never said anything that was negative she always spoke positive over my life but it was everybody that was around me so I began to you know embrace this and I began to internalize this and it began to get crystallized and I began to sing that chorus of incarceration over my own life and I remember I was uh at that point I was I was at 12, I was uh, probably 13, I was in middle school, and I was getting written up maybe three times a week. And the guidance counselor saw that something was going on. She said, she, her, her, her view was that I wasn't acting up, I was acting out because of the pain. So she assigned me to see a shrink. So I'm in middle school and I'm supposed to be the tough guy, the bad guy, and I'm going to see the shrink. And I remember I saw the shrink three times. That was it. The first two times I saw this shrink, I gave her flippant answers. I wasn't serious. I didn't take it serious. And I remember the third time I went to see this shrink and she asked me, how did my mom's incarceration made me feel? I never dealt with that pain before because I buried it. I didn't know how to deal with it. And I sat there and I just cried. All I could do was cry. I couldn't talk. I couldn't speak. I just cried like a five-year-old in front of this lady. And I never went back. And from that point on, it was drugs and it was alcohol. It was marijuana and it was drinking to numb the pain. And when I was 15, I remember I was standing on a train track and the train was coming. Because in my neighborhood, it was split black and white. White people lived on one side. Black people lived on the other side. The white people had a store. The black people had a store. And... I was standing on the train track and the train was coming and I was thinking, what would be the best way for me to die? And I was just running through the different methods. You know, should I just jump in front of the train at the last minute? No, they're going to, you know, if I do that, it's going to drag me down the track. I'm probably not going to die instantly. Should I lay on the track? No, it's going to cut me in half. I'll probably still be living for a while. What's the best way for me to go? Because I honestly felt that nobody cared. Nobody would miss me. And I got a call. Somebody called me from behind. And I'll never forget. I turned around and it was my cousin. And I put the smile on and he was like, man, what are you doing? And I was like, nothing. I'm doing nothing. And he looked at me. And um, I mean, we went and we smoked a blunt. And unspoken, he knew what I was going through. And it's something that we never spoke of, but he yeah, how knew. Old, how old was your cousin? He was my younger cousin. He's a, he's a year younger than me. Okay. He's only a year younger than me. Yeah. Yeah. We still talk to this day, but yeah, it's something that we never really spoke of, but it was like that knowing, like he knew what was going on. And, um, from that point, it was just downhill. That was, that was it. And that was the, that was the first time I attempted suicide. One, one thing I want to say about suicide is this, before you see the outward manifestation of a person taking their life, it's already there. Suicide, suicidal thoughts and mentalities and things of that nature, it's already there. People do things 
and we look at it as if it's foolish they throw away an opportunity they miss something um uh like they throw away an opportunity for their lives before you outwardly take your life mentally you're already there at that point and you just don't know what's going on and that's where i was and i remember when i was 17 right before i remember a few years matter of fact it wasn't even a few years it was a few months before i got locked up i stole a truck and i was in orangeburg south carolina and i was coming up on one of the most busiest intersections and it was a it was an area where it was like the cops slept. There were there were uh, truck stops, there were uh, McDonald's, there were all these places to eat at and cops were always there and it was a very busy intersection. And I remember just thinking to myself again, the same exact thoughts, nobody will miss you. And I remember hitting the gas and the light was red and I hit the gas just hit the gas. I knew either I was going to get hit or I was going to get locked up and nothing happened. I went straight through the light. No sirens, no anything. You know. And so, and so really that um, school counsellor um, asking you that question and you decide to answer it, that really opened up all your emotions that you're feeling from, you know, either how you're perceived to be treated by family members, the, the, the things that you've witnessed at a young age, you know, your mum being incarcerated for murder, everything just spilled out. And like you say, your, your life went on a sort of a downward spiral from there. And so, yeah. so I guess then when you ended up in um, prison, I know we've, we've moved through the public defender now saying, you know, 50 years, 30 years, you know, you got 15. But when was the point then when you... Um, could sort of start to see a transformation in you. I know there was a story about uh, you seeing a Bible one day uh, and it made you reflect on your grandmother always saying that, Gary, you can do great things. And maybe share a bit of insight about that story. Yeah, um, I was sitting in the county jail and I was in a room by myself at the time. I didn't have a roommate. And I was probably in there maybe, maybe, if, maybe about a month. And... It just hit me like I had my, my my epiphany. It was like everything that I've done up to this point got me here. And you know, you know, when you're thinking life flashes very fast, but you can that that flash can cover a, a spectrum of years very quickly. And I saw all of my actions in one brief stint, and it was like, man, everything I did got me here. There has to be another way for me to live, you know, because and, and and I don't know the right way to live because all my actions got me here. And I decided at that particular point, you know, it was, you know, I came to that realization like there has to be more to getting high, getting drunk, robbing people, stealing cars. There has to be more than that mediocre street life that I was living. There had to be more to it because it didn't get you anywhere. So I was sitting in there and I started thinking about my grandmother my great grandmother and all they wanted me to do was go to school finish school and you know she told me you know get your car if you get in college that's this is what my grandmother came and told me in prison after the fact but i knew that my great grandmother you know she kept me in church all the time i went to church three times a week on a consistent basis every sunday monday tuesday thursday friday you know part of the youth choir she was trying to do everything she could and I knew her idea was live right and you'll be successful. And I was thinking if my great grandmother's advice would make me successful, I glanced over and I saw a Bible sitting on the table and the thought hit me. What would God's advice help me do? I would have to be successful. That's when I chose to live and not merely to exist. I mean, I embraced the Bible uh, 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 to live righteously, I'll say. I embraced that because that the only definition, the only person I'd ever seen live righteous was a pastor in the neighborhood who would come out and he would do the plumbing. He would do the electrical work. And if the people didn't have any money, he wouldn't charge them. You know, that was the only man that I had ever seen live righteously. And that was my example. So when I picked that Bible up, it was ultimately because I didn't want to hurt anybody. And I prayed the hardest prayer I'd ever prayed in, in, in my life at that time. I, the public defender had already came and told me that I could be facing 50 years in prison. So, of course, I know the amount of time that I can get. And I remember praying and asking God, don't allow me to leave like I came in. If that means I don't have if that means I never go home, then 
I don't want to leave like I came in. And it's just ironic that I got 15 years because in my mind, I knew that the most amount of time that I could do willingly was 15. I knew I could do 10 years standing on my head. I didn't know how, but I knew I could do it. And I remember just thinking like, man, if, if I could get 15, I can do 15. I know I, I probably can't do 20, but I can do 15. But I remember praying and asking God like, yo, just don't let me leave like I came in because I don't want to hurt anybody else. Yeah, and like you told me something about um, along the lines of it. You wanted to change, uh, not to get out of prison, but you wanted to change to become a better person. I think that is also, um, that's a strong mindset there as to why you wanted to go through transformation. It wasn't just to, to play the game to get out of prison quicker. It was actually to generally to become a better person. I know that uh, there's a lot to unpack there in what you just said, but one of the key things I heard about the pastor was having a positive male role model. Uh, and I know that when you were in prison that you were saying that there was um, various different religious leaders and, and guys in the prison and some were, were younger than you, but they mm. they commanded this respect through education and through their spoken words. Uh, and you were yeah. used to living in an environment where respect was earned by, you know, a beating or a respect was earned by violence against someone or respect was earned by how much that you had. And obviously in prison, you didn't have those things. So um, maybe, maybe share with us what was being stirred in you when you were seeing these younger people that were commanding respect to the prisoners. And you also told me respect to some of the prison officers as well. Yeah. Um, when I came into the system, see, when when I came into prison, that was like the last few years of the Pell Grant. So at one particular time, prison at one time, it was, you know, a lot of brothers and sisters were being educated because they were allowed the opportunity to get the Pell Grant and go to college for business and management and 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 literature. And when I came into the system, I came into the system on the down end of that. So I still got some of that. When I came in, of course, you had the drug dealers, you had the the uh, the alcoholics, you had the guys who just wanted to do their time, play cards all day, watch TV, play chess. But then you had another group of guys. You had a group of guys that they had characteristics that I'd never seen before. Um, as you just explained, yeah, of course, most of the time in the street, you know, when you command respect is followed up with violence or force or because you have money or people just want to be around you. But these guys commanded respect with their minds. Um, and it wasn't just the prisoners that admired them. It was, you know, it was the staff as well that showed them a different level of respect. They walk differently. They talk differently. And that's, you know, what I want it to be. That's what I I started modeling myself after that. So my first mentor was Malik. Um, he was a Muslim and he started giving me guidance, started giving me insight. And uh, he showed me, this was the first man, this was the first guy I'd never, like for me, for me not having an understanding of African history and African culture and being in the neighborhood that I was in, of course I've seen, you know, some smart black men, but I never met men that looked like me that operated at that level of intelligence. And it just kind of like threw me for a loop. Like, this is what I can be, you know, this is, I can attain this, you know, I'm here, I'm in prison and I'm seeing this. And I remember he gave me Malcolm X and I was a Christian. And when you read Malcolm X's autobiography, he talks a lot of trash about Christianity. <laughs> and I remember the first time he gave me the book, I came back to work and I slammed the book down. I was like, I can't read that trash. And he was like, he said something real powerful. He said, I'm Muslim. He said, and I understand the history of Islam. He said, I understand that uh, Arabs also operated in the slave trade. He said, understanding history isn't detrimental. It gives you more power because now you understand. And when you understand something, you know how to deal with it. And I fought. I fought it for about those a week. words again. He was he was getting you with the words. You, I want to meet this guy. Yeah, yeah. I, I I fought him. I fought it for about a week, and then I read the book, and it changed my life. Because here was a person who was Detroit Red. He was a hustler. He was a gambler. He was like me, you know, and like the average cat. That's the average young man in the hood or in prison. He was that's Malcolm X. That's who he was, and then. Now you know him as this and you watch him transform his life. 
Malik was like my Malcolm X at the time because I watched this guy. I would be in the library reading a book and didn't know what a word meant. And I would ask him, what does anthropomorphize mean? And he would just, you know, given um, human thoughts and characteristics to inanimate objects and animals. And he would just kick that out just like, and I would go through different words and he would just tell me the definition. And then he got tired of it. And he brought me a word list of 100 words. He said, memorize that. He said, because your mind is your greatest asset. This is what you need to do. And I, he got his articles published in a prominent newspaper while he was in prison. I watched him started reading a book about plays. And I asked him, I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm, I'm about to write a play. You ever wrote a play? No, I never wrote a play, but I'm going to write one. He wrote a play. He put it on for the entire prison population, directed and acted in that same play. When I started writing plays in prison and acting in prison, I did that because of Malik. I did that because of my mentor. You know, he taught me that you can use your creativity, to educate as well as to entertain. You know, then there was it was like three prominent figures, really. It was Khalid. You had him on the show, Lester Young. He was a young man and he was the E-man of the Muslim community. I never attributed wisdom to a young person until I met him. And he would always pull me to the side, kept a book in his hand. He would always, you know, ask me, hey, what's your insight on this? Read that. I said, man, you got great insight. And then there was, uh, he taught me, though, that regardless of the situation I found myself in with focus, determined effort, I could rise above and I can be better. And then there was my elder, my elder Baker. There wasn't anything you couldn't ask him about African history, African culture, world history, world culture that he couldn't answer. And he taught me to study systematically, he taught me to trust in myself, taught me that I'm a leader. From him, I understand that we don't just read to become walking, talking books. We read so that we can take the knowledge that we learn and to educate others and lift them up. You know, it's from him that I have the philosophy that my duty is to contribute to the advancement of civilization because my ancestors have always done that. And then there were a few other brothers, man, but uh, yeah. Well, it's, it's, it sounds like, and I imagine at this stage, you're so like your early twenties, right, in in prison, and, and yeah. just just hearing that it seems it's the first time that you've most probably had positive men as an influence yeah. in your life. I mean, even even the stories you've been telling the family members right now, or your great grandmother, or you know, I've not heard anything about male role models, and it shows how how important that is. And I guess I want to touch more about your your transformation. I'm hearing a strong journey here as to you know how you've really sort of I can see why your book is called The Reinvention and Transformation because that's really what's what's happened to you. But um, you know, during this, you mentioned earlier that you know you last saw your mum when you was a, you were eleven, and then sort of twenty four, twenty five again. She was then coming to visit you in prison. But I know that your mum went through a transformation, and she ended up becoming a, a more of a, a mother figure for you and helped you transform um, transform some more. Yeah, yeah, she was. That was my greatest. She was the greatest role model for me because. The guys that I met in prison, I didn't know them outside of prison, but here was somebody that I lived with that raised me that literally did a 360. You know, when I was in prison, they allowed us to write each other. So for a few years, we were both in prison. So she would send me money. She would write me. We would write each other. And from her letters, because she wrote me on the street, but I was living, I was out there and I was running. So the letters she would write me, I would skim them, even if I would read them. I, you know, I, but I wouldn't really pay him any attention. But when she would write me those letters in prison, it was different because I noticed that she had a better under she had an understanding of the Bible. She understood spirituality, um, and she understood. I, I I really began to see her wisdom when she would write me these letters and to, to encourage me to stay strong. And then when she came to see me, it was totally different because. You know, now here she was, she's back up on her feet, you know. She wasn't she, the same person that you'd seen. No, no. Up. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. No, this was mom. She was stable. She was, you know, did everything that she needed to do. Walk eight blocks, get up three in the morning to get to work. You know, well, walk 14 blocks, get up three in the morning to get to work, get a car, get a home. And one of the greatest things that she showed me, it, it, her integrity is unparalleled. There was an incident. She came out of a bank. Um, this bank a lot gave her a loan to get her home, get her first car. She came out of this bank and it was raining and it was, you know, like a decline. They didn't have, uh, 
when they paint and they have like the so that you can get traction they didn't have anything out there and they didn't have the stuff in the paint so that you could get traction so she fell when she fell her arm went in the air and it hit the ground and she has rods in her wrist now and when she told me that the first thing in my mind was hey that's a bank sue him sue him we ain't got to worry about nothing just sue the crap out of <laughs> we, him, can, right? we can retire now i like it yeah we yeah. Can, yeah we can really just sue him yeah see, you are you're living in america so you've a sue culture so it's okay yeah my mom didn't sue him my mom told me something that i'll never forget she said when people treat you right you treat them right she said that bank had the opportunity to deny me a loan that bank had an opportunity to deny me the opportunity to get onto my feet she said i'm not going to do that to them they on their own they made certain concessions and certain things to where it was acceptable but the normal person would have gotten a lawyer and they would have just sued 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 i never forgot that and even now to this day when i think about a job or i think about someone who has a job and leave a job i think about my mom saying you know how she views it and she does she did the same thing with the job job gave her opportunity when she came home after doing all that time and she just didn't abandon them you know she worked there she let them know look hey i need to move on but i know that you're short so i'm gonna work for you so, until so you find someone to replace me and then i just need to move on but her level of integrity was different than what yeah, I so had the, experienced. The gratitude I imagine that she's feeling because one, she was a convicted felon of, you know, manslaughter. Uh, and also the, the bank gave her an opportunity when other financial institutions might have no, said, yeah. said no. So it was, a, it was a great level of gratitude that, that she showed. And I guess I want to touch on, uh, you, you mentioned earlier that, you know, your mom had two children um, and she was only 18, 18 herself when she had you. And then she gave away your sister. Um, believing that, you know, for life was going to be tough and you as the man could probably handle it more than than uh, the daughter. But I know that you reconnected with your sister uh, a few years ago. Can you share a little bit about um, how you reconnected with her? Yeah, I, uh, growing up, my mom always taught me, you know, she always told me that I had a sister and she always told me the reason why she gave her up for adoption. And she uh, she went through a close family member uh, who knew some another family that needed to, you know, wanted to adopt a child. And her stipulations was make sure that you let her know that I didn't just give her away. Let her know that I was striving to find the best opportunity for her, that I love her, and that she has a brother. Um, so after I get home in 2011 and I'm 32, and I think at the time she's uh, maybe a year and a half, two years older than her. She's like 30, 31. Um, I find her number. And I call her. Oh, now you think about this. You've lived 30 years your entire life. All you know are these parents, these sisters, these brothers. You don't know anything. And you receive a phone call from a guy and he says, hey, I'm your brother. She hangs the phone up. She just, boom, hangs the phone up, dial tone. So I remember I was at the park and when I called her and a few minutes, probably about 30 minutes later, she calls me back. And she wants to talk a little bit. She's still. Is she I, suspicious? Or? She, yeah, yeah. She, it's, it's the trepidation is there because I, I pose certain questions. You know, uh, do you know, you know, uh, uh, my uncle, I, I say, you know, Moses, you know, I call my grandmother's name. So when she calls back, I find out that when she was younger, they used to take her to our grandmother's house and she grew up calling our grandmother grandma but she never could identify why because it didn't make sense when you get older you realize that this isn't your father's mother this isn't your mother's mother so why are you calling a grandma when i break when i pro when i when i uh when i open that subject now she begins to question like well yeah i did used to call her grandma i do know him i did used to call him my uncle but i don't go there anymore and she, you know, she uh, she deals with me kind of like long handle spoon. Right. You know, she kind of feeds me the long handle spoon. She's she's not really like because I'm you got to think I've known about my sister. So my, my entire life. So, of course, I'm coming with open arms. 
she's looking at it like i don't even know you i kind of like don't really trust this situation but what you're saying it has to be true and she confronts her parents and when she confronts those and those parents you know something else happens and anyway um we got an opportunity we meet the first time um she tells me that she has a daughter and she tells me her desires and her dreams and her goals all of that few and a few years later um it was a thanksgiving we had met about uh uh probably about a month prior to that and she had she wanted to start a cleaning company and she showed me her she showed me her business cards and uh she wanted to start off doing like some dental offices in the neighborhood and she wanted to do this because she wanted to spend more time with her daughter because the job she was working was just taking a lot of time and she showed me her business cards and you know i congratulated her so on and so forth and hugged her she told me she loved me just at the third which is something she never said before so of course i'm feeling very excited because the relationship is growing into something that i've always wanted thanksgiving night my uncle calls me and he tells me that my sister has died um and she had crohn's disease and i'll never forget thinking time is valuable because she wanted to chase a dream that had been knocking at her door for years and she always thought and i thought that she was going to have that opportunity to build that business and spend that time with her daughter and leave her some type of legacy and here it was a few months later she's gone you know you never know how important time is until you're met with a situation like that and you know it makes you think about it and reflect but yeah i didn't get a chance to build the relationship like i wanted i never met my niece um and i never saw her build the business that she wanted and grow it and build give her that legacy but i, I did get her I was going to say, it's interesting for me because you know you spent so long in the judicial system incarcerated where you had nothing but time to think of some of these things but it was only really when your sister was passing or when your sister passed but you really sort of acknowledged that life is short and what you do with it so maybe you were having those thoughts and emotions in, in prison but it's just sort of interesting to me that you use that, that story of your sister to say that that's when i really understood that you know time and, and life is short yeah it is it is and now you know sort of questions i sort of start thinking in my life is that you know the from your mum being given up by her mother at an early age to be looked after by someone else in your um, family to your mother committing you know uh, murder when you were 11 um, to you having to go and live with your great um, grandma, um, you know, to the, to the drugs and some university that you have to face and sort of comments from your own family from battling, you know, suicide, which is, you know, increasing in, in the US and, and everyone is struggling with a sort of uh, mental um, health. You know, then going on to seeing your mum's um, transformation and you, now your own transformation. We'll talk about what you do now, um, helping the youth in a, in a few minutes, but... My question is, uh, why you? What what made you different that you could break that cycle of brokenness and become the man you are today? I mean, you're very articulate. You're very well spoken. You know, you read Malcolm X's book, which is more than I more than I've done. I mean, what what why you? What make what makes you different that you could break that mold and make something of your of your life? I don't. I I, I don't. It's, I think it's a number of things. I don't think it's one thing. Um, I know the Bible says, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he get old, get, he gets old, he won't depart from it. My grandmother instilled in me from, even though it was only five years at that young age, I was going to church on that consistent basis and around people, even then, you know, who saw something in me, but just didn't really know how to express it. Um, and then me being in prison, and having certain people around me that were able to say, okay, man, you've got something in you. You've got this. You can do this. Like, you're a leader. You have to stand up. This is your opportunity. And they just poured in me, into me. I believe it's like this. Um, I, I like to use an example of potential. And I like to use the acorn seed as a great example. Within it, within the acorn seed, there's 
an acorn tree. That acorn seed has the potential to grow into a mighty oak tree if it's planted in the right soil at the right time, at the right temperature, if it's in the right environment and receives the right nutrients, then of course, what's gonna happen, that acorn seed is gonna fulfill its destiny, grow into its full potential, and we experience its genius, and that genius is that tree. But what happens if we take that acorn seed and we drop it into a glass jar? No soil, no nutrients, nothing. Just that acorn seed rattling around. What happens to that potential? It's still there. The acorn seed becomes the prison to its own potential. It becomes the jail cell to its own genius. Human beings are the exact same way. If we aren't in the right environment to receive the proper nutrients, the proper nourishment, the proper cultivation, what happens to our potential? It remains there, but it gets trapped. And we become the prison to our own potential. We become the jail cells to our genius. My job is to teach young people that they're here for a reason, that they're here for a purpose, and to help them understand that you have something greater within you and possibly be that water to them that could ignite the inspiration in them to believe in themselves, believe in their genius, believe in their courage, believe, you know, just believe that they have that ability. You have to have the right environment to pull greatness out of people. If you're, if a, if a great person, if a gifted person is in the wrong environment, it doesn't matter how talented, how gifted, how genius you are. If you don't receive the proper cultivation, the proper nourishment, the proper education, the proper guidance, your genius means nothing. Your giftedness means nothing because you're going to blow opportunities. I was in prison in the most detrimental, worst place in the world, and I was getting the nourishment, the cultivation, and the guidance that I should have gotten on the street from guys who had devoted themselves to becoming better. And when they saw light in another young person that came into the system, they were devout and well-meaning and they were disciplined and they were driven to not allow the system to douse that light. What they strove to do was ignite that fire within you. And I was just fortunate enough to be in that dorm around those guys and their passion and seeing the light in me, just being in the right environment, man, it just it, it did that for me. Well, and I know, you know, you've got your book behind you there. And I know you spend a lot of time going to schools and educate young children about your experiences. So maybe just tell us a bit about your book and how people can get hold of you, um, Gary, if they want to learn more about the, the work that you now do. Well, the, uh, the book Mining the Diamond in You details the journey that I took um, kind of step by step to transform my own life. Um, and the book, you can find it on my website. But you can also get it on Amazon. Uh, my website, GaryRobinsonInspires.com, uh, is right there. Uh, everything is there. The more essential, um, this is essential, but I believe Black multi-genius. I just wrote this book. This is actually uh, a proof copy, and it's going to come out within a month or two. This book, I believe, is going to be the book that's going to transform lives simply because what I found out is that you have to have reference points of greatness. Everybody has it. If you're an if if you're an athlete and you play basketball, your reference point is going to be Mike, LeBron, Kobe. It's going to be one of those guys. If you're an actor, your reference point is going to be Denzel. It's going to be Issa Rae. It's going to be somebody. You always have a reference point in whatever you want to do in life. You have to have reference points of greatness. The Black Multi Genius is to strip away the lies that genius is solely based on IQ test scores. All of us have genius. Genius is that innate ability that we enter the world with. We all have it. You do something great that I can't do and you bring into it your own unique potential, your uniqueness. And all of us have that. And what I do with that particular book is I document different individuals um, that are African. And it just shows that they have a myriad. They've got different. They've got different. Uh, they've all got different talents. Imhotep, architect, administrator, astronomer, author, physician. You know, when you think of these individuals, sometimes you don't see them as that way. When you think of Melvin Van Peebles, actor, director, screenwriter, playwright, composer, it's a multi genius. Oprah Winfrey, talk show host, actress, producer, media model, businesswoman, you know. 
Dr. Mae Jemison, scientist, chemical engineer, doctor, teacher, astronaut, businesswoman. These are black people. And what got me to writing this book was I Googled black multi-geniuses. And being that I studied history for over a decade, I knew that there were a lot of them, but there was no list of them that populated on Google. That's absurd. That, that was absurd to me. Yeah, well, I Google's think... algorithm as well depends as to what you type in. I mean, <laughs> I mean you, you, you've been African-American. You type in President Barack Obama comes up. You know, me being English, I, I type in, you know, world leader, you know, Boris Johnson, Prime Minister of the UK comes up. It's, uh, they try their intellectual stuff. They try to predict who we are as, as individuals, don't we? But, it, I mean, you've, you've done some great research. I mean, this conversation shows that, you know, you're well-read, you're very articulate, you know, you argue your points out well. And it's been a great honour and a privilege to listen to you share your story, Gary, and see your see your transformation. So um, I'll put your um, details in the in the show notes so people know where to, to buy your material. But thank you very much for joining me today. Yes, sir. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for the Who I Became podcast. If you are enjoying the discussions between Simon and his guests, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review, as well as share with your friends on social media. Once again, thank you for joining the Who I Became podcast.